Hey, this is Carolyn Pearson, good friend and follower of Lindsay Hanson Park, who is doing amazing and important work with her Year Polygamy podcast. I learned to my horror that Lindsay does not even get the requisite 69 cents on the dollar of what her male counterparts in the world of Mormon podcasts get by way of contribution. Do you believe that? I quote now from the Salt Lake Tribune, God bless the Salt Lake Tribune. Women in Utah receive 69 cents for every dollar paid to men. Now, I'm not saying that Lindsay should get as much as men. After all, she is a mere woman. But come on, let's get her up to the 69 cent mark. I'm a subscriber for 10 bucks a month for the last year or so, and I urge you to do the same. Just jump on that donation button and hopefully that subscription button, and let's make a commitment to that great Lindsay whom I love. Okay, thanks. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt of the divinity of this work in which we are engaged. It is one of the joys of my life at home and abroad, in private and in public, to testify that I know as well as I know that I live, that God lives, that he hears and answers our prayers. He's heard and answered mine from childhood until the present day. He heard and answered the prayers of that beloved mother of mine. Under the inspiration of the living God, she planted in my heart a love of truth, a love of God, a love of the prophet Joseph, to know that this is true, this gospel of Jesus Christ, why it's worth everything else in all the wide, wide world. I pray God to bless each and every one of us that has a knowledge of the divinity of this work. May we grow and increase in that knowledge, and above all, may we live it, that our lives can proclaim it is my humble prayer. And I ask it in the name of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. One, two, three, go. Feminist. Mormon. Housewives. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. Feminist. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series where we try to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage. And I've brought on someone who has been on the podcast before. You might know him as Mithrin. Mithrin, can you say hello? Hello, everyone. Glad to be back. Now, I brought Mithrin on to do something kind of fun. We we have made it through fundamentalism. So if you are listening to this podcast, congratulations You've survived the fundamentalist period that we talked about. But we are going to move on and try to talk about the modern LDS church up until where we are today and see how polygamy is still affecting us and how it is sort of guiding decisions in the church. And that brings me to the story of Heber J. Grant. Heber J. Grant, of course, um, becomes sort of this new prophet. He would be one of the last prophets to have been involved with polygamy and to take the church sort of in the modern era away from polygamy. So Mithrin has done a lot of research on this, and um, I'm just going to let you bring it in and start to tell us what you know about Heber J. Grant. Yeah, yeah. This, is, this is really a linchpin time period uh, for polygamy and, and 
for what happens in the church going forward. Uh, Heber J. Grant definitely is a pivotal role in, in Mormonism as we think of it today, or at least LDS Mormonism, I guess I should clarify. And, and I love Heber J. Grant. Uh, he, he's given me tons of material from my Nutty Mormon History series where I do lectures every once in a while uh, with groups because some of the craziest things happen uh, throughout his lifetime. He's really there for some of the, the best moments. But to understand Heber, and particularly his views on polygamy, we need to go to his mother. And, and that starts um, with Rachel Evans, is her name. And she was raised, actually, um, as a Quaker, such that uh, when the, uh, the Mormon missionaries come by and start teaching her family about Mormonism, one of the big draws is that she can sing if she is a Mormon. And the Quakers, they, they weren't so cool with the, uh, with the singing. In fact, after she joins the church, her family, um, say that she is, she was all levity after she joined. And that is how, uh, they could tell that she had really fallen from the true path. And, and as we go through, we're going to discuss her all levity as compared to what we might think is levity. Um, and, and well, anyway, how, how different the idea was, but she was raised very Victorian. She had a, a very solid idea of what was um, moral and right and good. And the missionaries that come and knock on her door, one of them's name is Jedediah Grant, and he's going to feature prominently into the story as we go as well. Now, Jedediah Grant, we've talked about when we talk about the Mormon Reformation, and I will also link to that. Great, yeah. Uh, again, very interesting character. We could do a whole episode just on him and his views, I'm sure. So Rachel doesn't have a lot of diaries or a lot of um, information written about her uh, throughout her teenage days in uh, and around Nauvoo. Um, but she was the, the bosom companion of Sarah Kimball, which meant that she was to most of the Relief Society meetings. She was involved. Most of her friends were plural wives of Joseph Smith or she interacted with them on a day-to-day basis. Um, she was she was once asked in a private and informal moment uh, what she thought of the prophet, and her reply was, he seemed distressingly unprophet-like. Uh, another quote that she gave, he would play with the people, he was always cheerful and happy. Uh, so that was, to her, not very prophet-like. Um, one time, Joseph was visiting the, the Ibn's family uh, on the Sabbath, and he requested the family girls sing the, the song In the Gloaming. And uh, she res- responded, mortified, but Joseph, it's Sunday. Uh, so that was her levity, was she didn't ever sing on Sunday privately. That was beyond, and, and that was too much for the Quakers. At one point, and, and I believe this is 1840, between 1842 and 1844, could be closer to the 1844 time period. Joseph came to her, and she believed that he was going to ask for her hand in plural marriage. Again, she was well-connected. She knew what was going on. And uh, and the quote she gave, um, I, I believe it was her brother who recorded it, was that she would sooner go to hell as a virtuous woman than to heaven as a whore. And I think when we have the essay that comes came out on LDS.org, and it says we don't really know what people's thoughts were about polygamy at the time, or we didn't know what the men's thoughts were. I think we have some clue what, what some of the people thought about polygamy, and, and this idea that a woman would, would rather go
go to hell virtuous, then heaven is a whore, I think encompasses a lot of the Victorian perspective on what what polygamy would mean. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. We've talked quite a bit about this. There's a symbol for the era of a dried white rose. And that uh, the, the idea is is that even if you were to, to be a withered, old, crumpled woman, as long as you were still virtuous, that was more valuable than a lush, vibrant red one. Um, again, it, it's a fascinating point of view. Soon after, and Heber J. Grant would later say, when plural marriage was first taught, my mother left the church on account of it. She actually returned to New Jersey and left Nauvoo uh, before the prophet was killed and, and planned to never mingle with the saints again. And she would leave for 10 years. Um, her brother, uh, Charles, uh, no, sorry, James Evans, was actually involved in the creation of the Nauvoo Expositor. And the, the supposition among historians, the, the, the guess is that one of his main points of issue was the prophet proposing to Rachel. Uh, we're not sure. There's, there's no actual recording whether she said sooner go to hell as a virtuous woman than to heaven as a whore to Joseph himself or whether um, she just said that privately, uh, again, probably to James. But I think that it is not a large leap of logic that he was so incensed by this and her leaving altogether that he would join up with William Law when uh, William Law was saying he would publish about um, polygamy in the Nauvoo area. Yeah, and I appreciate uh, you bringing her in. And I want to point out something. Her sort of rationale is used and sort of is perpetuated still today in the fundamentalist communities who really believe that there is a way into heaven and there's a way not into heaven. So if you want to sacrifice your heavenly goods to, you know, have an earthly marriage or something and, and live monogamy here, then you can do that. But many women who believe that they are righteous are going to make this bigger sacrifice and, um, get into heaven. Yeah. Uh, yes, absolutely. In 1853, William Smith, who was part they call him part of the reorganized church in the in the documents I've been reading. He's kind of his own story, but he he visits um, Rachel, trying to convince her to come and join the reorganized church or the churches back east, however you want to see that, because it wasn't really a formal thing at this point. Um, and she turns him down flatly. Um, and uh, but by April fifth, she makes preparation to head out to Utah. And I guess becomes reconciled with polygamy. Um, on by August 11th, uh, she arrives in Salt Lake City and she meets with that missionary Jedediah Grant to be lodged because they had nothing and, and nowhere to go. She left almost all of her possessions behind, and, and her family offered her uh, a stipend for life, if you will. She she could never have to work a day. She could stay single and become that dried white rose if she would only not go back and join the Mormons. And when she arrives, uh, she stays with that former missionary, and many of you may have guessed the end of the story, given Heber J.'s last name, she ends up marrying him polygamy, polygamously. When asked, right about this time period, she gave a quote that said, One could be happy in the marriage relations without love, but one could never be happy without respect. And again, I think this is another one of those just Victorian concepts that that even if you never had love, if you never were involved 
with that sort of thing. The main thing was that other people respected you. And that had to be a, a, a pull on all of the women who were involved in polygamy, whether their respect would be impacted. It certainly was outside of the Mormon community. Once she was there, I don't know. At this point, Jedediah was the counselor to Brigham Young. He was mayor to Salt Lake City and already much married. He was known as Jetty among friends. And Rachel became his seventh wife two years after she arrived in Utah. In On the 29th of November in 1855, when she was getting married to Jetty, Brigham insisted that she was eternally sealed to Joseph Smith first. So she was only married to Jedediah Grant for time in the endowment house. And this is a really fascinating thing. Uh, I, I think this is a trend that is worth noting, that anyone who Joseph Smith proposed to, it seems like Brigham is is very intent on making sure those girls are sealed eternally to Joseph, regardless of what the circumstances are in this life. And for any of you who may be listening, who married your missionary, or, or were a missionary who married someone on your mission, you know, you can still have a kid who becomes the prophet, I think, is a story that comes out of this as well. Uh, even though it's kind of taboo in, in the, the modern Mormon era, it was totally allowed back then and, and almost expected. On the 22nd Wait, wait, wait. Of, back up. I want you to tell me more about that. Uh, well, the Jedediah was, was her missionary, right? And she comes, moves in with him because he's the, uh, the guy that she knows. And two years later, they get married. So I, I, I know that, but I mean, like, what you're saying where it was almost expected. Do you have other examples? Uh, yeah. Um, Heber J. Grant, no, Heber C. Kimball makes a comment that uh, the missionaries who are out in England are marrying all the good girls, or the, the I forget the word he uses, before they come across and are, are saving only the ugly ones to come to Utah. I think you described it a little bit in your... Um, what was it, the Outlaw Women podcast uh, yeah. a, a little while ago. Quite the quote. Um, but yeah, it was it was one of those things where you find the girl on your mission, you marry her, you marry another one, you marry another one, you bring them back, or you perhaps you don't marry them out there, you come back and get sealed in the endowment house all at once. But you, you bring them back understanding that they're going to marry you. Anyway, it was it was a very different time period. Fascinating. Uh, so, on the 22nd of November, 1856, Rachel bears Heber Jetty Grant a son and decides to name him Heber Jetty Evans Grant. And the interesting thing is that he's named after Jetty, the the short name, not Jedediah, the, the man's actual name, but what she knew him as. And nine days after Heber is born, typhoid and pneumonia killed Jedediah Grant. And so uh, he's, he's born without a father, basically. And this um, is important because when I was looking into this history, Jedediah Grant is such, I would say, one of the biggest Mormon fanatics in frontier history. Like, the things he did in the Mormon Reformation, like you said, we could we could talk about for a long time. Um, he's fan he's fascinating. So I was really interested in his influence on Heber, but really Heber is five days old, right? Uh, nine, nine, nine days, days old. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, enough that that I'm sure that his legacy. Um, I mean, you don't become mayor of Salt Lake City in this time period without being 
incredibly religious. There's no separation of church and state at all, not even a dream of it. And I mean, this is the time period where, where a year later, they're going to start talking about uh, could they secede from the Union? Like there is no influence from from outside. And so, uh, as you said, he, he was quite the frontier missionary, quite the frontier, I don't want to say, what's the word I'm looking for? He was a leader and, and very influential, and I'm sure that had a big impact. One more thing I wanted to say about his birth, he was named by Bishop Woolley, and that, that's going to take us right back with that Woolley name um, to the last episode we did together that would later become that offshoot. He's at least related to the Woolies, uh, to Lauren and, and so forth, to become the FLDS. And Bishop Woolley, in the blessing, says that Heber uh, J. Grant would become an apostle. See, I didn't know that, but that I can see where you're tying that in. Interesting. Yeah. In uh, She's instructed to get remarried by Brigham. Pretty directly told that she needs to get remarried, and he in- arranges the marriage. I think that's fair to say, uh, with Jetty's brother, George Grant, probably trying to fulfill that, that Leviticus law where if one brother dies, you marry the next brother. Mostly, I think, to take care of the, the, the widows. You know, there were seven of them. The money dried up pretty quickly afterwards, and, and there wasn't a lot left over. And I think he was trying to take care of the women to give him the, the benefit of the doubt. He has her marry... Jetty's brother, George Grant. And George, he was an Indian fighter. He was a hero of the, uh, the 1856 handcart tragedy. But he had begun to drink alcohol after this. I think some of these things probably got to him. Now, again, this is 1850s Mormonism. The, the word of wisdom has not been made a requirement for the temple yet. We'll get to that. Brigham Young is ordering breweries to be founded in the Utah Salt Lake area. He's he's asked the Dixie Wine Saints, I think it's actually two years later, to start raising the grapes for sacrament wine. He has the best stock liquor cabinet west of the Mississippi. So so to have a little bit of alcohol was normal in the time period, but he he actually becomes an alcoholic, and that's a distinction I don't think we make enough in the LDS community. That being said. Uh, six months after his marriage to Rachel, George committed an unprovoked attack on Thomas Williams with the attempt to kill. It was a street brawl, and Heber's two years old. And this public showing of alcoholism um, is embarrassing to the point that Brigham Young dissolves the, the two-year marriage. But it really impacts Rachel, and it impacts Heber. I'm sure that this is very key to how Heber viewed alcohol, how he viewed polygamy, how he viewed a lot of these these very key Mormon elements that he would play a role in. Uh, the, the quote that goes along with it is, uh, this is Heber J. Grant, it was one frightful ordeal of my mother's life and the one thing she never wishes to refer to. I mean, I think I think you're arguing it right now, but I think that this is how these early doctrines and practices really get solidified in the scope of Mormon canon, I guess. Yeah. Uh, the, the, when Heber's mind about what it means to drink a beer or, or what it means to have your mother pass from one husband to another, again, it's hugely influential. And we will get to Heber's own polygamy in a bit, right around the corner. But uh, 
I think it really does set set the frame of reference that he does not view it the way a lot of the older guards view both polygamy or the word of wisdom. Now, this is where we get this next time period between about 1860-ish, 1871. This is where this is where we get the story of Heber uh, that she she sews at her, the coat for Heber, and uh, Heber gives it away to a child who needed it more. Back when we were on primary, that was a prominent story, if you remember that. The stories uh, that she would spend all night sewing to try to make her own living. Another prominent story from the friend. One Christmas, Rachel wept because she lacked a dime to buy a stick of candy for her boy, her boy's holiday. She goes down to St. George in southern Utah. She'd firmly declined an offer from President Young uh, for church aid, and instead she supported herself and Heber by sewing, at first by hand in the homes of others, and later with a Wheeler and Wilcox sewing machine in her own house. Um, and the quote you may remember from the children's friend, I'm sure I read it at least 12 times growing up, I sat on the floor at night until midnight. Heber remembered many evenings and pumped the sewing machine to relieve her tired limbs. So we're going to uh, to get to a point where Heber is influential as well on the welfare program. And I think this whole section really informs why he cared so much about a welfare program, why anyone going without was a huge deal. Now, this sewing, she earned up enough money to buy her own place, and she serves um, meals to boarders in a, in a small kitchen, uh, small basement kitchen, and uh, a life insurance man comes, and he tries her food once, and he, he, he it's implied that he's trying to marry her or woo her away, but basically, between the food and, and her charm, he decides he's going to stay there. And uh, she actually builds a room just for this man because he's, he's so profitable. And this is a lot of where um, the money comes in Heber J. Grant's early days. Uh, is between that sewing and that boarding business where she took on boarders. This leads up to, to 1871 where Heber at the age of 15 joins an insurance firm, H.R. Mann & Company. He's an office boy. He's a, he's a policy clerk. And after business hours, at the age of 15, he would go around selling fire insurance. He's very good at it. By 19, he bought out his employers and organized another insurance agency all of his own. And this comes, of course, to the attention of Brigham Young. Brigham is aware that Heber has been prophesied to become an apostle. He's aware of his, his work ethic and, and dedication. And he appoints him to become the assistant cashier at Zion's Bank. And I tried really hard to find out whether this was a church appointment that would fill a cashier, cashier at the Zion's Bank, or if Brigham Young called the board of directors and had them appoint him. I couldn't find it, but, but my, my gut leans toward that cashier positions could actually be appointed by a prophet, not necessarily by bank managers. I, I couldn't find a solid source on that, though. And shortly after he is put into uh, the cashier position, he is married for the first time to a woman by the name of Lucy Stringham uh, on November 1st of 1877. By the age of 23, so he's only 21 at that time period. Uh, one of the interesting things to note, he also did not serve a mission uh, at this point. He serves the mission, um, he's called later on to go to Japan, of all things, in 1901. And I, he certainly does church service, but there's no 19-year-old missions, and he does get married at 21. 
By 23, he was called to preside over the Twila Stake, so he's a, he's a stake president. And by 1882, he's called as an apostle. And Heber has kind of a different view as he becomes an apostle, as he's put through these things. The, it, it's very clear that there's a tie between his financial success and his raising the prominence in the church. Um, this whole, he's appointed to be the bank cashier, I think, kind of kicks that off. And he believes it, it is his personal ministry to preserve the Mormon commercial influence. That God has basically called him to make the LDS church commercially viable. And so he, he's, he owns the, the leading agricultural concern. Um, he has two insurance companies, a livery stable. He sets out a newspaper. He creates a bank. There's this, the Salt Lake Theater he starts up and is one of the principal investors in, uh, Utah Sugar Company. And then he also, he had a couple of failed ventures in mining and manufacturing soap and vinegar. So he is amazingly financially successful by, by 1893. And we will get there. And, uh, he actually forms a financial company together with, uh, George Q. Cannon, who's only point is to provide solvency for church interests and to keep things uh, running. And I think a lot of these things that I mentioned are spin-offs out of this this investment group. The closest thing I can think of today, I think the Ensign Peak Investors, if you've ever heard of that that little shadow organization within the church hierarchy, it has a tremendous amount of money. It can bail out companies. It can do political things. No one really knows who who works for it, uh, or how many employees there are. I think this, this canon Heber J. Grant, that's the closest analogy that we have today. Uh, so the next thing that's, that's really prominent, I think, is the Edmonds Act in 1882, um, makes polygamy illegal. And I know that as LDS people, we really, uh, or the LDS people really look at the official declaration number one is the end of polygamy, but from a federal standpoint, 1882, after that point, it's not just a little bit illegal, it's very illegal. And on May 26th, 1884, um, I guess we should point out in 1882 is when he is made an apostle in October of 1882. So just after the Edmonds Act is put into effect. Uh, he is the most junior apostle. And two years later, on May 26, 1884, he marries polygamously for the first time. Uh, the woman's name is Augusta Winters, and she moves to New York City to prevent Grant's arrest on polygamy charges. So even though they're married polygamously, she almost immediately, uh, it's by the late 1880s, so they're together for a couple of years. She goes to New York City to try to prevent him being arrested. She only gives him one daughter, and she was basically um, the wife. When he was outside of Utah, he would spend time with her. When they would go to non-Mormon audiences, she actually accompanies him on the Japanese mission in, in 1901. And she dies in 1952. So again, I know that the LDS kind of say that official declaration number one, we haven't practiced polygamy for 100 years, but there were three women who were polygamously married to Heber J. Grant, all active LDS women who could have been sitting on the same pew and watching each other's children, you know, in the 1950s. Prominent women, I guess I should say. Anyway, the uh, the point being, 
that the next day, on May 27th, he also marries Emily H. Wells. And, and that time period is, I think, very key. John Taylor is the prophet of the church, and he is very vocal, I guess is the word that one has to use, that men have to be married polygamously or they will be removed from their positions as church leaders. He says, I think there's three different statements basically to that effect. I think we covered one of them last time I was on. Um, but he marries Emily H. Wells, uh, these two women a day apart, and I think that it was that April conference where one of those uh, John Taylor statements was given. And so I think that Heber is almost provoked into polygamy, that he, he wouldn't have done it otherwise. Emily H. Wells is literally the girl next door for Heber J. Grant. They live next door uh, all while they were growing up. They were both young orators in the Salt Lake City Society um, in the 1870s. They both were connected with the Wasatch Literary Association. Uh, Grant was the counselor to Emily's brother in the young, the, the MIA program um, of the day. Do we know of how how any of these adjustments were made, how the marriages were, if it was difficult, or if they settled into this? Let me finish off him marrying Emily H. Wells, and I, and I will, that's totally the next thing that I want to talk about, is, is how it was being in Heber's uh, polygamous home. Uh, so in the the, seventh, eight, the 1870s, Emily actually comes out against polygamy publicly. She is part of an anti-polygamy group, and this causes a falling out. They don't talk for a while. And then he, he proposes to her more or less out of the blue, uh, and she accepts, and they get married there. Again, it's, it's fascinating how that comes together. And she goes to England to live at the LDS mission home to have her first child to prevent either being prosecuted herself or for Heber J. Grant to be prosecuted. So he doesn't spend a lot of time with these polygamous wives. They pretty quickly move out. In 1889, Emily goes to Manassas, Colorado, and basically is in exile where, where her family comes to visit. And, and he takes her out there, but he rides a separate train or most of the way to avoid being arrested. Uh, stays for two weeks, sets her up, and comes out. That being said, Heber goes on and on about how his polygamous children didn't have contention the way most polygamous homes were. And his kids seem to agree that they all thought of themselves, whether they were from one mother or the other, as all siblings, and they get along, and, and um, they really do brag about how much better their polygamous family was than the others. Okay. So this uh, takes us to, to the Panic of 1893. Now, there was a previous panic. Uh, it's known as the Crime of 73 for the history buffs. There's a big to-do about the gold and silver standard. Uh, Frank L. Baum is uh, riding the Wizard of Oz with the silver shoes on the Golden Road and all of that. And Heber is kind of called in to help the church through this financial crisis. And uh, he, he does a wonderful job. This 1893 is a whole new level of um, financial collapse. In fact, it, it mirrors our uh, 2008 collapse pretty well. Investments that are subprime, uh, banks needing to be bailed out, a, a huge recession that follows with all sorts of, of collapse, except for there is no Federal Reserve to bail out the banks. And so uh, just we had, as we had Lehman Brothers uh, collapse that, that kind of started a domino effect, the same thing happened then, but the dominoes kept falling. Uh, 
the worst of the depression was in uh, for Utah was the winter of 1893 to 94. Utah's urban unemployment exceeded 25 percent of the of the population, and some of the laborers were marching in Salt Lake City, demanding either bread or blood. That kind of gives you a feel of how how serious this panic was. Uh, at the same time, in uh, about 1,400 uh, Commonwealthers, these are out-of-work Californians traveling east to protest, were camping in Ogden on their way, making a pretty serious situation in Utah. By late 1897, the church itself owed over $2 million of that time money, an amazing amount nowadays. Uh, it was looking for another loan of the same amount. Heber J. Grant finds himself in 90000 in debt as of May 29th, 1897. And then this, we're going to branch off into this financial section for just a bit. Heber's brother-in-law, Thomas J. Stevens, comes to him on behalf of the directors and the members of Ogden's Loan and Trust Company, the ULNT. And uh, Charles Comstock Richards and Franklin S. Richards, uh, these are the sons of Franklin D. Richards, established this firm. It stopped paying dividends in 1892. So before this panic hit, in 1893, a fire actually gutted the building the bank was in. Abraham H. Cannon offered to buy the controlling interest to help bail it out. Again, this this financial state religious kind of triangle, there was no separation or boundary. You could take public coffer money and put it towards a church interest. You could take church money and put it towards a private interest. Not a lot of federal oversight, uh, as it were. So he, he buys this, this controlling interest to back a railroad from L.A. to Salt Lake City, thinking this is going to help the financial situation for everyone. And he used the bank's reserves to back the purchase of the bank itself, which is one of those big no-nos in all of financial. Like, that's one of those things you're not supposed to do. But he thought he could bail out the bank using this railroad, that enough money would come in, he would be able to, to handle that without a problem. But six weeks later, after he used the uh, the bank reserves to purchase the, the bank itself, he died. And uh, when he dies, two of the employees, Leon Graves and Clarence Barton, remove $5,200 from the vaults and and run away to the east. Now, again, remember, we're $2 million in debt to the church, and $5,200 is enough that's worth it to take it and run, and you can set up your life forever, just to give you a kind of a feel of the inflation amounts. Joseph A. West, who is, I believe, the clerk of the bank, to his credit, he mortgages his home and replaces the uh, the $5,200 that is gone. But the rumors of these two men leaving cause a run on the bank. So this bank is in serious trouble. And his brother-in-law comes to him and says, Heber, we need you to, to take over the bank, basically. We need you to, to handle this. And so Heber goes out and he fundraises for the bank. And the style that he does is fascinating. Uh, I, there's just one quote I want to read. There's a whole set of them. And if you have the chance, I don't want to get into it too heavily. But this is very worthwhile. He goes to Jesse Knight. And Jesse Knight is famous in Mormon history all the way back to Joseph Smith. He creates something known as the humbug mine. Uh, he has a dream that there's a silver mine. He goes out, digs, and actually strikes it rich with the silver mine. He goes to Jesse and he says, When you get home tonight, get down on your knees and pray to the Lord to give you an enlargement of heart, and then send me a check for a thousand dollars. 
for this bank, the Utah Loan and Trust. You know, when I was a missionary, I taught how foolish televangelists were, but that sounds straight out of any televangelist playbook. And he basically does. He organizes, he gets the brethren first to invest in the bank, put their own money on the line. He um, then has these meetings after state conferences where the wealthy are invited to attend and offers them the rare opportunity to invest in the bank. And he takes with him a note signed by the, the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve that they are to invest in this bank. And he drums up an amazing amount of money like $75,000 in that time period, um, it's well over a million to try to save this bank, using this method of after-state conference meetings with the wealthy. And I was curious whether this still happened today, whether this was relevant, as you said, to the, the modern church. I met uh, uh, with the, one of the former gubernatorial candidates at lunch a few weeks ago, and he independently, I didn't didn't talk about any of this with him, actually brought up that he had been invited to several of these meetings and who else had been there and, and so forth. So this still goes on today. You can still go to these meetings after state conference if you're a wealthy enough member and be propositioned to invest in horrible, horrible investments that, that may or may not turn out, gutted banks by fire and so forth. I'll just list a few of the people who were inv- invited to, uh, to give. George Romney, that's kind of a name that, that some people get their might recognize David Eccles of the Rice-Eccles Stadium fame, Alfred W. McCune, again, Jesse Knight, William H. Smart. And the reason given, why why would the, the First Presidency give a note saying that people should invest in this bank? Well, many, again, these banks are all connected. If one falls, they all fall. And many of them had actually invested with the Utah Loan and Trust to the point that they were on the board of directors. And it turns out if your bank gets rid of all of its reserves, that's illegal. I don't know how to say it any better. It's kind of like very illegal. And uh, they were all facing jail time. If the bank were to collapse, they would all have rightfully gone to prison for illegal banking practices. practices. And uh, Heber J. Grant points out the good name of Abraham Cannon is on the line. And he's well respected, but that's not enough to get him to save the, the, the bank or to write the, the note. So he points out that they they too will go to jail as well as besmirch Abraham Cannon. And that's when they agree to put out this paper and get members to donate. So knowing that the bank is burned and gutted, knowing that there is no money in the bank, that it's had a run on and this guy has mortgaged his own house to, to, to have enough money to survive a run, they encourage people to invest in it, and they do. And by 1900, all of that money that he drums up is gone. And the bank is about to collapse again. And Heber is is fairly distraught. For over a month, the bank cash reserves had fallen well under the legal limit. This bank ought to fix up its affairs, the examiner wrote, or go out of the business entirely. And 1900 may be a key time period for anyone who knows their history. I kind of want to ask if anyone in the back can raise their hand and tell me what ha- what big church event happened in 1900. I certainly remember it from my mission, showing the video many times. Lorenzo Snow goes out and uh, does his rounds there in, well, I guess it's in, in 1899. Uh, he does the rounds, and, and by 1900, the church handbook of instruction comes out, and it is 100% about how to collect tithing and make sure the tithing makes it back to Salt Lake City. That is all that first handbook has anything to do with. 
So the first tithes from his famous tour are coming in. And so he uh, uses tithing dollars to back the bank for 30,000, gives them 30,000 to get it back within the legal reserve limit and prevent the brethren from going to prison. By August, uh, the bank closes up uh, business and requests the depositors to come and get their money. So he just gets it to the limit where no one will go to jail using tithing funds. And it, it closes down. The man who mortgages his house, actually, he, he recovers that amount uh, with interest after get doing a lawsuit. At first, he was going to be left with nothing, but through legal means, he is able to get his, his amount back. David Eccles takes hold of the bank office as part of the deal when he invested, and uh, he sells the bank for a 20% increase. The man kind of has a golden touch. Another man that would be fun to do uh, an episode about. By the end of it, the LDS Church spends $50,000 in subsidies and lost loans with the, the Utah Loan and Trust. And the sources for this, I'm sure there's someone out there going a bunch of anti-Mormon sources. Uh, just to show that it, how faithful the sources I am using for all of this are, uh, in the original, it's, it, it then goes on to say how inspired it was to use this tithing money. The LDS Church, which spent $50,000 in subsidies and lost loans on the Utah Loan and Trust, paid a small price for rescuing its depositors, shoring up Ogden City's economy, and saving the financial reputations of some of its leaders and maintaining its own credit. So this is all very much done with a faithful eye. So knowing all of this with, with Heber J. Grant, uh, oh, one, one more quote. Uh, in 1915, Francis M. Lyman, um, again, a very famous name if, if, throughout church history, uh, such as Luke Lyman for the Joseph's uh, being tarred and feathered incident. Uh, Francis M. Lyman in 1915 said, no matter what comes of you, uh, to, this is to Heber J. Grant, no matter what comes to you of importance, no matter what great labor you may perform, it is in my judgment you will never do anything greater than the saving of that bank and having men put their money in a rat hole. That's an apostle wow. on how that bank influenced and, and Heber J. Grant. Uh, and really quick, will you give us links so people can do further reading? Absolutely. I love Link. So, Grant succeeded Joseph F. Smith as president of the LDS Church in November of 1918. Again, a, a very key time period for history buffs. This is basically, you know, World War One uh, is, is 1916 to 1918. So he was um, the head of the Quorum of the Apostles throughout that uh, time period. He, he has a focus, um, his main programs. He's gone on the mission to Japan in 1901. Again, just before, uh, World War I broke out. This is kind of, um, Downton Abbey time period, uh, that he's over in Japan doing that to give some context. And then he is, uh, prophet all the way, um, to 1936. Uh, well, that's when he's still doing welfare programs. And, and what's interesting, well, one of his big things he was known for was, of course, the Word of Wisdom switch. It was during his time period that he made Word of Wisdom a requirement to enter the temple. And he, he's made president of the Quorum of the Twelve in 1916. 
And he places himself in the forefront of the drive for Utah Prohibition uh, all through while he's an apostle. Again, that that alcoholic stepfather, um, and, and it doesn't talk about the interactions after that point, but but having had him as a stepfather, I'm sure that he continued in the news, that it was connected, his name is Grant, people may have, have had association that that was all there. Um, he was also the forefront when he became the Quorum of the Twelve, he drove the state's World War One Liberty Bond drives. So he was uh, probably the best reference that we have today. Remember in, in the Captain America movie that came out, when Captain America is singing to sell war bonds, uh, that's World War II, okay? But the World War One equivalent, Heber J. Grant was basically the person who pushed that as an apostle for, um, uh, for Utah. Uh, he was prophet from 1918 to 1945. So basically, he was president of the quorum or prophet through both world wars, uh, or the beginning of World War II. Again, I think that very much influenced the way that he approached things. And wherever I read, it gives him the credit of starting the welfare program, but the welfare program actually started by another, perhaps should be better known, uh, apostle, uh, well, at the time, he was a state president, Harold B. Lee. Harold B. Lee in, in 1930, um, at the start of the Depression, has a, a stake where no one goes without a Christmas. And, and his bishops work late nights, um, all the way up until the very end of, of Christmas morning, uh, when they remember a family who is forgotten, they go out and make sure that that family has a Christmas too. It's really quite a moving story. And, and, uh, one of the great credits to the church. Um, he pulls this together, and Heber sees what what Harold B. Lee is able to do, and drafts him as an apostle uh, at the next opportunity because he wants this welfare program. And again, I think that's informed by how he grew up, uh, not even having a, a coat that was worthwhile, and and his mother working those late night hours, and and trying to get, uh, you know, when you go to the welfare program today, for anyone who has done it. They try to get people not just to be dependent on the system, but to have a job, any job, uh, even if it's just the dust inside the chapel or, or whatever it is, put people to use to earn that welfare. That sort of ideology comes out of Heber J. Grant's backing and his mother's industrious nature and, and, and so on. So while you're talking about this, you know, we just have covered the fundamentalist period and I think you're doing a great job telling the story, but I just want to juxtapose this with what is happening under the scenes. So you're doing a great job showing us what's happening to the LDS church. But remember now at this point, while Heber J. Grant is doing this with the welfare program, this is where the Kingstons who are struggling as members of the church in the welfare, you know, because of the depression decide to start wearing all blue and grow their beards out into long braids and start they react to this by living this sort of united order, and this is how the Kingstons develop. And meanwhile, while all of these policies are happening with finances in the church, they're still dealing with these fundamentalists who are practicing polygamy. So um, I just wanted to point that out to keep that in the listener's mind, because I think especially LDS Worms are really good at separating this history. We kind of put LDS history as one thing and fundamentalist history as separate, but they are really intertwined. Absolutely. In fact, so during this time period, you know, this is when the Woolies are starting up and, and having their revelations and starting to do their break off. And it is, in fact, in Harold B. Lee's stake that some of these individuals that the Woolies are claiming 
authority through or connection with uh, are excommunicated. This is where Anthony Evans is, he's not excommunicated, but he is brought to, to discuss polygamy as well as um, Matthew Crawley, who married uh, a 19-year-old in 1905, so that's well after the second manifesto. He marries her. He is brought under under fire there in Harold B. Lee's stake. And Harold B. Lee would go on to say, there are some who say, if you were to get a wife by hook or by crook, then go get one. And he lamb blasts that statement. Well, if you trace that statement, it comes back to these trials. It's actually said by an LDS apostle, not a fundamentalist apostle, but an LDS apostle who is trying to help the fundamentalist breakoffs not be excommunicated uh, as proof that they are actually within the umbrella of Mormonism. And Harold B. Lee is, of course, famous for correlation. He is the man who completely goes back and rewrites the manuals, rewrites history to eliminate any of these references. The reason that, that we separate these different categories and these ideas today is because of Harold B. Lee and what he saw under Heber J. Grant and Heber's own opinions about polygamy. Again, I don't think Heber wanted to practice it. He certainly did not jump at the chance nor involve his wives throughout to, to, to pull them all together and, 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 you know, to be deeply embedded, he didn't jump and grab lots of wives. I think he got the bare minimum that he was told to go get by the uh, the prophet at the time. And, and so this kind of births the new Mormonism. He's, I was talking a little bit about the word of wisdom and it becoming, that becomes a, a major theme for correlation, is that you live the word of wisdom. Again, I think it's that Harold B. Lee, Heber J. Grant influence. And the financial aspect, the tithing is used together with business interests. And that that is all kind of established. I mean, it goes all the way back. There's definitely precedent for all of it. But but the way that the church is funded now, all the way to the City Creek Center, and saying that it wasn't built out with tithing, but we're not going to tell you where the funds did come from, and we say it was a small group of of prominent church members who donated to make sure that we could do this. That sort of lingo comes all back to this kind of pivotal time period of of. All of it. Now, the other interesting thing, and this is perhaps the most jaw-dropping moment, and I'm, I'm going to kind of wrap up with this, is that Anthony Evans is Heber J. Grant's cousin. And Anthony is sent to Mexico to continue plural marriage after the second manifesto, kind of after the first manifesto, to go and get that established into the running. He's known as the Cowboy Apostle. It is totally worth it to go get the book Cowboy Apostle and read about his life. He's a fascinating man because he will be preaching uh, a sermon at the beginning of Sunday and fixing fences to prevent the cows from getting out, you know, immediately after the sermon, and then um, do another church-related thing, and then go and brand a cow, cow to finish off the evening. He's, he's just—he's a great guy. He was totally thrown under the bus. He keeps this going all the way through 1905 in Mexico when they kind of get ousted by the the Mexicans. And he, so he's keeping this, this polygamy going. And if you read the Evans family, um, they have lots of proof of apostles who would come and marry another wife in Mexico. They would write letters beforehand asking this to be done. They have, um, you know, statements where he's set apart specifically for this purpose or that they dedicate the stake to this purpose. Um, 
But if you were to go to official sources, there's no mention of them, or if there is, he is an apostate. He he leaves and and does this without the knowledge of the first presidency. He's doing this without their what's the word I'm looking for? Their their approval. And I can't help but go back to, you know, again, their cousins, the Evans name, Rachel Evans, and, and Heber J. Grant being being both from, from Rachel's line that basically he is treated as a, a a whore in heaven that he is thrown under the bus by by the, the church and and treated as though he was not as faithful or the the these people who were doing this in Mexico they were just kind of off on their own doing this crazy thing trying to be a faithful apostle trying to do what he was set out to do but nowadays we totally view it as though, you know, they, they were, you know, just out after sex or whatever. Um, anyway. So um, I, I have a question for you. So knowing all of this, one of the things I've, I think I'm doing in this podcast inadvertently, I didn't start out to do this, but to show how much polygamy has affected these policies and, and changed the church and sort of developed the modern church. But I think what, what you're talking about is, it's interesting because we think at 1890, the church just cut it off and were, was done with it. But we see how it creeps into people's lives and histories. And Heber J. Grant is, is a good example of this because he was so involved in, in the practice and not just in his own marriages, but in his own childhood. Maybe just sort of wrap up the ways that you see this contextualizes for us. I, I think that the reason that Heber is the last one, last prophet to have marriage is directly related to uh, his mother being sold to Joseph Smith for eternity, but to this man that she true, truly had respect for for only nine days and then being pushed to an alcoholic abuser um, and that he only kind of got pulled into it because of John Taylor's rhetoric about how anyone who's a leader of the church has to be involved in polygamy. And then he brings in, because of that poor time period, um, Harold B. Lee. And, uh, and Harold B. Lee, he's brought in very young. Everyone expected him to be prophet for, for 65 years, and that's a, another story. But Harold B. Lee kind of takes this, this grant mindset. Very financially successful man. That earns a lot of respect of a lot of people. And, and tries to make the church the way that Grant would have liked it to have been. It's all about taking care of the poor and the widow. It's all about proper priesthood, and there's none of this weird polygamy stuff. It's all about prohibition and not even a drop of alcohol. It's all about these views that Heber held so dear. That is what is canonized by Harold D. Lee in, uh, in that correlation history. And, and the things that are outside of those ideas are what more or less get dropped as what it means to be a Mormon. Yeah, that's that's well said. And Mithrin, you're so good at contextualizing all of this and and knowing the history. So tell us where we can find you online if we want to read more about the work you're doing. Um, so I have a blog that is known as Exploring Mormonism. That's where I post most of my timelines. I will be posting the Heber J. Grant timeline after you uh, after the podcast goes up. Um, so that people can follow. I, I will put links and sources there. 
I, my m- most frequent haunt is, uh, the ex-Mormon subreddit, exmormon.reddit.com. Uh, just to make sure all the biases are known. I did leave the church so no one can, can accuse me, but I, I did it under the best of pretenses. That is, once I learned all of this, I didn't want anyone to think or accuse, as they might with poor Mr. DeLynn, that he was just hanging on to lure people away. I thought that it was moral to say, I'm not doing this to, to mislead people. So I want you to know my biases. But uh, on exmormon.reddit.com, I'm there answering questions. My most famous thing that I'm probably known for is nutty Mormon history. That is anything that is stated in the manual, but then they use like a dot, dot, dot ellipsis to cut out what the nutty part was. Um, and then they continue on with the rest of the quote. I go in and fill in those dots and help people make the connection. Uh, and, and that again ties all the way back to Heber or to Harold D. Lee and, and why we have those ellipses in our manuals and, and why he thought these things were too nutty to be included. Um, but those, that's basically, if you have questions, you can raise it on the comments section on the, uh, the timeline or you can go on to, uh, either mormon.reddit.com uh, or exmormon.reddit.com and, uh, type anything to Mithrin, and I will um, be happy to help provide context or, or answers. Fantastic, and I appreciate you doing this timeline. It's it's really helpful, and um, I think after this we're going to, I mean, we're winding down to almost the end of the series, and this is such a good gateway into the rest of the stuff we're going to be talking about. So thanks so much for coming on again. Thank you for having me. And thanks for joining us for another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast, your polygamy.